Hello, my name is Kate Chesterman. I'm a GP in South Norfolk and I also co-host the GP Notebook Education Study Groups. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcasts, where we present bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can follow me on Twitter, at ChestermanKate, for more information about the new podcasts and study groups as they become available. Now for the next few episodes of the podcast, we've got something a little different for you. In May 2022, as part of something we're calling Chronic Conditions Month, there is a series of seven webinars with live Q&A sessions, each focusing on a different long-term condition. The webinars, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to provide wide-ranging clinical education programme, focusing not only on the diagnosis and management of different chronic conditions, but also on the strategies required to address the complex and challenging interplay between coexisting morbidities. Healthcare professionals in the UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chroniconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining. And to accompany the webinars, the Chronic Conditions faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which they provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So without further delay, please enjoy the third in this series of special episodes. This one features Dr Anthony Cunliffe and Dr Peter Bagshaw, who will talk us through the health inequalities in cancer. Hello, I'm Peter Bagshaw, GP and Somerset CCG Clinical Lead for Mental Health, Dementia and LD. And I'm joined today by Anthony Cunliffe, National Clinical Advisor for Primary Care with Macmillan Cancer Support. Welcome to our podcast, which comes to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month 2022, taking place throughout May. This includes a whole string of interactive and informative webinars designed to address the primary care challenges of diagnosing and managing chronic conditions across a range of therapeutic areas. Today in this podcast, we're going to be discussing health inequalities in cancer. So, Anthony, can I kick off by asking you why you've chosen this this topic? Absolutely, Peter. Thank you. Well, I think for you know most of us working in the health system have seen we're, we're used to um, we're aware, always been aware of health inequalities, but I think we've all seen that many of these health inequalities have been exacerbated over the last two years because of the COVID nineteen pandemic. And for someone like myself, who I'm a general practitioner, but I work four of my days in cancer services, um, and uh, we've certainly seen the health inequalities exacerbated, affecting the whole of the cancer pathway, really. So right from, you know, presenting an access to primary care with, with symptoms that a patient might be concerned of that could represent cancer, through to access to secondary care, access to treatments and decisions around treatments, recovery after treatment, and then and then risk of secondary cancers as well. So um, it's health and chronic health inequalities are really relevant when it comes to cancer care. Mm. And I'm aware of some cancers that are uh, linked to socioeconomic factors. So uh, particularly smoking and obesity, for instance, do you, do you want to say a bit about those? And I'd be interested to know what other uh, things it's relevant in. 
Yeah, well, if we think about the the main uh, risk factors for, for avoidable cancers, so uh, cancers that are you know very strongly linked to an avoidable risk factor. So you've mentioned smoking, obesity, alcohol consumptions, some occupational exposures. Nearly all these avoidable risk factors are much more prevalent in certain demographic groups. So certainly people uh, of a lower socioeconomic status, uh, we see all these risk factors more prevalent in those groups. Um, and But also uh, these risk, risk factors unfairly discriminate against other harder to reach and vulnerable, vulnerable groups like some black and ethnic minorities, people with learning disabilities. Um, and so, um, so many of our underserved groups um, are unfairly discriminated by a lot of the risk factors that lead uh, to the development of cancer. And can you just remind us which cancers this applies to? I Obviously, we all know about lung cancer and smoking, but a lot of the gynae and other cancers are related to obesity, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, all the most of the common cancers are related to some of the avoidable risk factors. So you've mentioned smoking, which is, you know, the single most avoidable risk factor that is, you know, has been shown to be causative of multiple cancers, you know, not just lung cancer. Um, as you say, obesity is linked to uh, cancers like some of the gynecological cancers and liver cancer. Um, and um, obviously UV exposure and, and skin cancer. And then some of the occupational exposures, uh, increasing risks of cancer like lung cancer and bladder cancer. And I'm interested that you mentioned ethnic groups. So what, what cancers are they more prone to and, and why is that? Well, I'm not sure it's when it comes to health inequalities and black and ethnic minorities, it's necessarily about um, a higher incidence of cancers in those groups. Although we do see a higher incidence of cancers in some black and ethnic groups, we see a higher incidence of obesity in, in some black and ethnic minorities. And so all the risk can the cancers that are associated with obesity have a higher risk in those groups. Um, although I think when it comes to health inequalities in black and ethnic minorities, it's way over and above incidence. We see uh, a, a less cancer awareness in, in those groups, as well as, you know, those people from a low socioeconomic status and people with learning difficulties. We see a poorer screening uptake in many of those black and, black and ethnic minorities. And really importantly, when we look at the National Cancer Patient Experience Survey, we know that they report a poorer experience of care, um, even as far as things like uh, being talked about as though they weren't there. That's one description, one question in the National Cancer Patient Experience Survey. So it's way above uh, way more than just a higher incidence of, of developing some cancers. Yes. And in my uh, neck of the woods, uh, I'm all too aware, well aware of the uh, increased obesity rates in people with learning dis disability and serious mental illness, and also the screening uptake that you mentioned. So they're definitely groups that are, are, are badly served. What about Diagnosis. Is there a delay in people coming forward? Is there a delay in us diagnosing cancer in certain groups? And, and why is that? Uh, there is some evidence to support that. Yes, Peter. So we know that uh, uh, people from black ethnic minorities uh, are more likely to present more times to primary care being be before being referred uh, for suspected cancer. We don't know why that is, but we have the data to support that and research is needed to find out why that might be the case. Um, we, um, we also know that um, 
when it comes to trust in the health system and trust in data um, certain um, underserved populations including those of black and ethnic minorities but not uh, not only those uh, groups in certainly the people from a lower socioeconomic status as well find it harder to access uh, healthcare and have a, a lower trust in data sharing involved in healthcare and all these are really important when it comes to health inequalities because if we don't have the data then you know we can't do the appropriate research and make the appropriate changes and for us in primary care, some of that data collection really comes down to the data that we collect in primary care. And we know that we have, we know that there's good evidence to suggest we don't collect ethnicity data as we should. We don't collect other data like uh, gender and sexual identity data as we should. And all these can impact on somebody's experience of cancer care. And sadly, what you're saying about cancer, absolutely mimics my experience in dementia as well, where we see the same thing of uh, lack of understanding, delay in diagnosis and distrust in people coming forward. So, yeah, sadly, it's a, a, an issue across the board. You mentioned it, occupational. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Uh, so I guess I'm not uh, an expert in occupational medicine, but we do know that if we look at evidence from, say, Cancer Research UK, when it looks at the, the avoidable risk factors, I think it's maybe the fourth highest avoidable risk factor is occupational exposure. Um, and we know that most of that will perhaps be um, um, manual workers um, uh, who might, may have exposure at the place of work or, or because of um, chemicals they might be working with as opposed to more, uh, say, managerial occupations. And we already know that incidence is less and diagnosis tends to be earlier in people um, who are in more managerial professions. Yes, and obviously uh, we, we know about... Uh, um asbestos-related cancers, but uh, presumably it reflect, it's reflected in lots of other pollutants and uh, chemicals as well, is it? Yeah, absolutely. It's not just asbestos, it's, it's other inhaled chemicals um, that can lead to increased risks of respiratory cancers and, as I said, bladder cancers, as I've already mentioned. Yes. Yes, my father was a, a chemistry teacher, and oh. every now and again he'd come home with a list of chemicals that had now been banned because they called can caused cancer. And uh, whether that played a part in his demise, I, I don't know. Mm. Um, hairdressers, I've heard about hairdressers and bladder cancer. Is that something? Um, well, there are certainly links to bladder cancer with certainly certain chemicals. I'm not, I'm not aware of, of that relation to hairdressing, but that's just uh, my lack of knowledge, probably. Okay, well, you've stated the, the problem extremely clearly. So for us as, as busy GPs, I guess we can move on to solutions. So what can we do about this? How can we improve the current situation? Well, I think even just awareness is really important, Peter. Um, a lot of the underrepresented groups that we've mentioned, you know, you mentioned um, dementia and serious mental illness. I think serious mental illness is a really good example, um, along with some of the others we've talked about, of groups, uh, population groups that are affected along this whole cancer pathway. So it's not just that they are, you know, ex um, experiencing increased difficulty accessing healthcare or uptake to screening. It's at every point in this healthcare that they're experiencing these, uh, of this cancer pathway that they're experiencing these, uh, this inequity of access or inequity of experience. And so I think even just awareness of us as primary care physicians of the different groups that are 
you know, experiencing these this inequity. Um, and I think awareness is where it starts because if we're aware of it, we can think about what at least we can do to try and improve the situation. I've mentioned data. I think literally uh, even just improving the um, uh, the quality of data that we collect in primary primary care, so that that demographic data um, that we collect in primary care, so that that um, is clear on patients' healthcare records, because certainly we hear from certain groups like uh, um, um, trans women um, being treated very differently and people being unaware of their trans status, which not only uh, um, do they describe a, a poorer experience of interactions in the healthcare, but it can have si significant impacts on things like them being invited for screening, so uh, or the appropriate screening. So even as simple as collecting the right data in primary care can can make a big difference. That's fascinating, Anthony. And one of the great things that I, I really enjoy about chronic conditions is finding these links across different uh, diseases that we normally think of separately. So I'm involved in trying to encourage uh, annual screening for people with serious mental illness and learning disabilities. And, and exactly the sort of barriers that you've described are ones that we come across there. And, and sadly, the I don't know if people are familiar with LIDA, the um, confidential inquiry into uh, premature deaths in learning disability, but they describe that a lot of these things are preventable. And it's down to the attitude of, of all of us working in primary care. Absolutely. And I guess other things I'd be keen to mention would be um, support with navigation. We know that a lot of uh, groups like people with serious mental illness and learning disabilities have real difficulty navigating the healthcare system, have real difficulty making complex decisions around treatment um, and then adhering to those complex treatment regimens. And we might be the, the health professional that they're most familiar with or the healthcare team. It's not just down to us as GPs or nurses, of course. It's a whole healthcare team that can help with this. And perhaps some of our uh, newer employees like the health, the social prescribers, and we may even have cancer care coordinators within our primary care networks. And these can uh, provide an invaluable service in helping people, vulnerable people, um, navigate what is a complex system, um, support with treatment decisions you know treatment decisions are hard for anyone you know that cancer de treatment decisions aren't easy and for the more vulnerable groups including people like the elderly um, the default can be just to um, agree with what the doctor says or just you know and there is evidence to show that the elderly will are more likely to just go along with the treatment decision made by the doctor but of course we should all be empowered and supported to make those uh, treatment decisions um, and I do think there's a role for us in primary care, not for everyone, of course, because, you know, with capacities difficulty, but for our vulnerable groups, I think we could provide a real uh, support to help them in those difficult decisions. Absolutely. And I think I'd probably put it even more strongly than that with my LD hat on. Um, we actually have a duty to make reasonable adjustments, don't we? Absolutely. We allow people to, to come to those decisions themselves. Can, can you give us some practical examples of, of things that might help with that? Well, I think we, uh, I think um, I just mentioned the cancer care coordinators, and these are new roles that we're seeing within primary care. Um, 
in that uh, I think a lot some PCNs are using the primary care coordinator roles within the um, additional role reimbursement scheme to employ cancer care coordinators and some of their focus the ones we're seeing so far they've got quite varied job descriptions but some of them and most of the job descriptions I've seen have a focus on that pastoral and navigational element for people who've been sent on an urgent suspected cancer pathway some of which may not turn out to have cancer but still might struggle to go through that diagnostic process for a myriad of reasons sometimes we see it one one story i often remember that was um reported to me up in uh, with some work i was doing with macmillan in nosley was a patient that uh, was repeatedly missing his um chemotherapy appointments and the social prescriber had an appointment with him and it it, it turned out that um he was um he received his benefits on one day and his uh, treatments were always a full week away. So by the time he'd got round to the treatment, he didn't have the facility to just get in for his treatment. Now, things like that should never prevent somebody receiving cancer treatment. And so, you know, the inequalities go right down to just, you know, to uh, whether somebody can even afford or has the capacity to get in for the cancer treatment. Absolutely. Now, that's a very important point. What about once people do get into the cancer pathways? Do the, do the inequalities disappear then or do they persist? Oh, they absolutely persist. They persist right through the pathway, unfortunately. So certainly for some groups like people with serious mental illness, adherence to complex treatment is difficult. But even when people in, have completed treatment, um, uh, a lot of the, um, a lot of the uh, lifestyle decisions we can make that can support good recovery after treatment and reducing the risk of recurrence or further primaries, we're still seeing those same underserved population groups that are discriminated against again. So the the recovery after treatment is is poorer and the increased risk of secondary uh, second primaries and recurrences is poorer because uh, unless they're facilitated to be able to make those important lifestyle changes. That's very sad. And you, you've mentioned smoking and obesity, and presumably both of those things uh, increase the risk during treatment, don't they? Especially if there's surgical intervention. Absolutely. We, a lot, we hear a lot about prehabilitation at, uh, at the moment. And I think it's really important for us as primary, in primary care that we can often think, well, you know, a few weeks of stopping smoking or increasing physical activity or reducing alcohol won't make any difference now but there's strong evidence that it really does not only to um, um, the success of treatment very much to the recovery after treatment to adherence then with the rehabilitation and those lifestyle changes after treatment then obviously have a myriad of positive knock-on effects in that individual's general health so it's really important for us in primary care to if we can to have those prehab discussions and to really uh, to uh, understand that uh, changes we can encourage people to make even in those few weeks before treatment starts can have a significant impact. That's a fascinating point Anthony and uh, I, I was uh, looking this up in relation to Covid uh, for another talk I was giving and it was saying there that although clearly smoking takes many years to cause the lung cancer the changes in terms of clotting and the risk factors from that can happen very very quickly if you stop or start smoking. So it's never too late, is it? Absolutely not. Well, we've got just a couple of minutes left. So I wonder if you can give our listeners some top tips to take away that will help us reduce the inequalities that you 
described so well? Yeah, um, so I would say, you know, as primary care teams, we tend to look after a, a fairly varied demographic um, where, and and we'll all have certain population groups that are discriminated against from a health inequality point of view. So I would say the thing that we can all do is be aware of our, de our own demographics and identify those population groups that might be particularly relevant to us in our, in our area. Um, and certainly at the moment, you know, we're all about to probably restart our work on the primary care early diagnosis of cancer um, DARES and ensuring that the decisions we're making on the work that we do as part of that, ensuring that health inequalities are running through that and maybe all choosing a project that specifically targets a population group in our area um, to improve their either the earlier diagnosis of cancer uptake to screening or even their experience of cancer care i think if we all took that on as a primary care network um then you know we could see changes happening on a big scale brilliant that's a that's a great challenge that you've thrown down to us and i i hope uh, as many of us will pick it up as as we can anthony that's been absolutely fascinating thank you so much uh, i think what i'll take away from it in particular is the idea that we just don't feed people into this sausage machine of a, a cancer protocol, but we think about what's going on in that individual's life. Yeah, absolutely. It's personalised care. We should do it in everything that we do, and I think it's never more important than than in cancer care. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much again, Anthony, and thank you to our listeners. Um, we hope you found this podcast helpful. Uh, please make sure to register on the Chronic Conditions website so that you can listen to other podcasts in this series. And for our interactive webcasts brought to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month, 2022. You can sign up at chroniconditions.co.uk. Thank you very much and thank you again, Anthony. Thank you.